Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to the Lockbox Podcast. My name is Jeffrey Broger. I'm here with Jonathan Spears. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So why don't you tell our listeners who you are and where you're from? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Jonathan Spears. I am founder of Spears Group, and we work at Scenic Sotheby's International Realty in beautiful Destin, Florida. So I'm located in the Florida Panhandle, and um, thankful to be here, especially right now. We're 75 sunny in the middle of winter, so we're uh, we're fortunate. Amen. I'm in Huntington Beach, California. It's 75 and sunny. Love it. Oh, and uh, you know that's why we pay the sunshine tax out here. Yeah, exactly. For days like this. So what got you into the real estate industry? That's a great question. So I got my real estate license at the age of 18. Uh, I was very entrepreneurial. When I was going through college, uh, which was earlier than most, I, I started at the age of 14, had a bachelor in business and finance from Florida State University at the age of 19. And in the middle of school, I remember sitting in economics class, watching Lehman Brothers collapse. Uh, for our local coast, we had the Gulf oil spill, which if anybody remembers a live video on CNN with oil pumping yeah. out of the ground into the Gulf of Mexico, it wasn't great for our local economy. So for me, I had a very entrepreneurial spirit in general and real estate was a very natural progression in this area to get your foot in the door and um, get an opportunity to create wealth without trying to go to a large fortune 500 company and leave in the area that I love. Love that. And you obviously entered the working world into a recession, just like me for the listeners. He is 29 years old. So am I. So here you are listening to a couple of millennials that entered the workforce in the middle of the great recession. And then yeah. therefore kind of had to become entrepreneurial, had to be creative because it's not like we entered a job market that was just welcoming to everyone with a college degree or not. Right. We had to kind of figure it out. No, we did. I think what's most interesting, you enter into a market like that in sales. And yep. when, you know, the the old adage of you kind of eat what you kill comes into the mix. And if you're not killing anything, you're not eating. It was so true back then. Not only was the market struggling, but most salespeople in general had left sales jobs completely. And so mm -hmm. to be able to get into that business at that time was probably for me, the best possible foundational education I could have had. So uh, very thankful, but also very challenging. And, you know, we'll talk about market metrics today and where I see the future of the market going. But back then, most agents who are just now starting or coming into the business today would have had a much different experience in terms of sales. Absolutely. And so you started at 18 in real estate. This will be your 11th year turning 29. And I'm curious, you know, what's the single most important action that you take on a daily basis that has attributed most to your success? Because becoming top 250 as a 28, 29 year old real estate agent, that's a feat yeah. and that's top 250 in the nation, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was very fortunate. Um, you know, I say fortunate, but there's also quite a bit of planning and discipline that goes into that. I think the first year I was on Real Trends top 250 list, I was 25. And it became a repetitive thing. And really that's 
bred out of consistency, right? So what do we wake up and do every day that makes us great and ultimately keeps us great? I remember the first year I was a top agent in our market, I was 20, was that 25th year? I was 25. And I had somebody go, hey, you know, this seems like a peak earning year. They gave me a pat on the back and they said, don't expect that to happen again. And that was such a fire for me. I was like all fired up. I'm like, excuse me, like I'm 25 years old. Most people are just now coming out of college. I had been out of college for seven years at that point. And I felt like I had a little bit of chip on my shoulder after that. And, you know, repetitively was able to continue to produce not only the same amount of business, but doubling my business every year, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But for me, I wake up every day and I try to make the same consistent decisions, whether it's in business or whether it's from a personal well-being standpoint. I actually did an article with Business Insider recently about my routine And part of that focuses on waking up early, carving out time for family, being intentional, setting appointments, and making sure that my day is scheduled out typically a week or two weeks, maybe three weeks in advance. And, you know, when I wake up every day, I like to start with either a great Peloton ride or a workout with my trainer. It mostly allows me to clear my mind and knowing that the hardest part of my day is already out of the way physically, it prepares me mentally for what I need to focus on. I've done another podcast about swallowing the frog, which I always tell my agents and, you know, for me, I started as a single agent. Now I operate a, a mid-level team, uh, Spears Group. And when we talk about, hey, how are we going to be the most productive that we can be today? It's what is the hardest thing that we've got to do today? And how do we put that up to the first thing on our plate? As opposed to, you know, let's procrastinate. I know I've got to let somebody down. Let me let them down after I have a few good phone calls. Mm. What I always do is let me make the hardest phone call first. And if I'm starting at the top and I'm hitting that peak and the most difficult aspect of my day is getting out of the way, it gives me so much more mental space to focus on what I need to do and what can make me productive the next day and the next day and the next day. So I'd say success line number one is swallow the frog. Make sure you're doing the hardest part of your day first so that you can focus on the most productive aspects of your day beyond that. And especially not carrying around that stress load and that pressure level of, you know, whatever that difficult situation may be. Wow. That's so true. And it's easy as a real estate professional to wake up whenever you're feeling like it, go to the gym around nine or 10, all of a sudden, you know, you're starting your day at noon. It's so easy to do, but so critical. And, And those listening to this podcast, They've kind of gotten over that hurdle, right? There are top brokers out there that are looking to then up their level even more, like, you know, go from 50 transactions to 100, right? So, you know, that's my next question for you. For anyone who's trying to go to, you know, I guess the first question, how many transactions did you do last year? And then we'll go from there. How's that? So last year as a team, we did just over $265 million in sales volume. Uh, focus primarily on the luxury real estate market. So our average sales price is right at 1.5 million. Um, we did 170 transactions and I've been doing hundred plus transactions for quite some time. I've been in the business over a decade and I'd say at least half that amount of time each year I was putting down six figures in transactions. For me in, in this particular market, uh, the average sales price in general is between a million and 1.5 million. So we're representing properties anywhere from $800,000 to 15, 20 million. And um, as I've grown in the business, in order to, to generate not only more sales volume, but also prioritize my time, I was able to focus on a higher average sales price 
as opposed to doing higher transaction amounts with lower average sales prices. It's funny, I started my career as an REO agent. So 18 years old, fresh out of college, I was looking for a job and ended up working with a team that all they did was foreclosure inventory. And at the time, that was really Great all time that to was do transacted. It. Oh, it was amazing. They're also much more complicated transactions than the ones that we do today. Uh, not only was the lending environment so different, but you know the problem solving was much higher because you're dealing with a very unemotional seller, which is a bank, and you're dealing with a very specific buyer profile that's only purchasing for investment purposes. And so for us, being able to problem solve through those transactions taught me how to handle not only a large caseload at one amount of time, but also focusing on deals that were a little bit larger so that I can make my time as valuable as possible and I could serve the right clientele in the market to maximize my business. So you're doing REOs and you know, yeah. you're achieving success at that level. And then you focused on luxury at some point. And my biggest question is focusing more on, you know, how'd you break through that barrier of going from, I'd say, let's do... Once you broke your first 100 million, okay, mm -hmm. so then how did you break 200 million? Because there, there's different levers to pull at different Ooh, that's spots. That's a great question. Right? Absolutely. And, and so at some, at some points, you're focusing on team. At other points, yeah. you're focusing on systems. At other points, you're focusing on training and developing the people. At some points, you're focusing on hiring, recruiting. So, yeah. you know, going from, say, let's say every listener out there, I know that everyone's not, but let's say everyone's at 100 million. They want to double and yeah. go to 200 million. Yeah. What should they be focusing on? So that's a great question. I think we have to go back just a little bit. As a single agent, when I was focusing on transaction volume, I had transitioned from a boutique brokerage to Sotheby's International Realty, which that transition brought a higher level of focus and a greater set of tools and a greater network to service luxury clientele. So I went from a very reactive mode to a very proactive mode because I had a shiny new tool belt. I had a shiny new car. I had great you know, energy that I could bring to that sector of the market, especially as a young person. You know, we talk about us both being in our 20s. When I started in this business, especially even today, if I shave my beard off, I look like I'm 12. So people right. go, hey, did you just come from a high school class? Like, how did you get here? Even now, I'll have people that'll call my team and my brother, who's five years younger than me, will answer the phone and they'll go, hey, you know, is Jonathan your grandfather? You know, how are you guys related? How, how does this work? Because obviously he's achieved so much success. He's got to be at least triple your age. And they're always right. shocked to find out that I'm not 30 yet. Um, right. But, you know, all of that kind of ties into the unique aspects that each of us have as a salesperson. And really, I don't even like the word salesperson. I like the word advisor. My team is a team of advisors. You know, we're not there to breathe commission breath all over people. And when we set these volume-based sales goals, they're personal, they're internal. They show us kind of the scars of the amount of inventory that we were able to not only transact, but the amount of people we were able to serve, which is really the highest goal in terms of our, our success. So last year, we were able to serve 170 people, and that was through 265 plus million in sales volume. The year prior, we did 130 million in sales volume, and we're still the top team in our, in our area, which is the Northwest Corridor. That transition between 135 million and 265 million is obviously a big jump. But I think the way that we were able to achieve it first and foremost was mapping out our strategy and client serve. Who do we have to serve? What segments of the market do we have to serve? 
Where am I prioritizing my time this year? And that year, 2020, was such a volatile year. There was at least 90 days where the music completely stopped. Right. And it was probably the scariest 90 days that any of us have experienced in our careers in general, much less our life, going through a pandemic and coming out the other side swinging, working from our houses. How could we be innovative? How could we provide value to our customers during this volatile time? And that's really what we focused on in, in order to grow our volume overall, even with that lapse in time. So from a value standpoint, we sat down and we said, hey, and we sat on Zoom. We, were, we, of course, weren't in the same room, which made it even more difficult. But we, we try to think, how could we serve this second home market when people can't even get across the border of Florida? We, I remember there was a time frame where we, Florida in general, was not allowing certain states into this state. And so we had clients who owned property here that couldn't actually come and check on their homes. We offered up our service to say, hey, you know, literally with white gloves on, we're going to go and check on your property, make sure that there's no leaks occurring, make sure that there's um, nothing unusual happening over there, trying to be their eyes and ears when, you know, they couldn't be here. And that was a great opportunity to prospect not only customers that we had, but also the friends that they had that owned. Um, and we built an incredible database just going through those motions and doing that. But I think from a general standpoint, the way we've been able to increase business every single year is by providing value. And then sitting back and reflecting on, hey, what value do we actually provide? What could we do differently that was even more impactful? And how do we get better year over year? And does that look like having team meetings to review? Definitely. Yeah. So my team structure now is a team of 10. So I've got four admin, and then we've got six agents. And so with us in general, working as a team instead of a, a collection of individuals has probably been the biggest challenge of growing a team and also the greatest reward when you see it play out perfectly. You know, you think about some you know, award-winning athletes, Tom Brady, for instance, who just won uh, the most recent Super Bowl with a team he had never played with before. And right. so you see that team structure come together and create success you know, if Tom had come on that team and said, look, I'm Tom Brady, I don't need any of you. I can throw the ball down the field. I just need someone to catch it. You know, that's not the attitude we have when we come to this table. We come to this table and say, how can we serve each other while we're trying to serve a greater good of delivering the best service to our customers? And, you know, creating that team dynamic and the culture of a team is incredibly important. Whether you're in real estate sales, whether you're in the mortgage industry, whatever industry you're in, you're always selling something. Being able to come together and have a collective offense instead of an individual defense is so much more effective. Interesting. So when it comes to teams, I know that a lot of top brokers out there, they be successful in sales themselves. And they have a team, but the team only accounts for like 20% of their sales volume, right? They're doing 300 transactions a year and about 200 of them are going through themselves, their license, their hustle, their grind, right? And so it's a big shift in focus and skill set when you transition from top sales rep to manager leader. So right. how have you been able to make that transition and work more collectively as a team rather than a collective of individuals who might be inspired by you and you might help to coach them here and there, but truly working together as a team unit? You know, how, how yeah. have you bridged that gap? That's a great question. And to be completely transparent, Jeff, we're still bridging that gap. 
you know, that's a constant that honesty. Progress. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, going back to, to my career and how I've gotten to where I'm at today, um, I started as an individual agent and then I hired one assistant and that one assistant allowed me to double my business. So I saw in this dynamic of a very small inception of a team, right. I was able to double my business. And how did I do that? I leveraged somebody else's time and skill sets that may be greater than mine. So when I look at a team dynamic, I think about myself as a teammate, but not the center of the team. A lot of top producers who are on teams, they're the center. The whole team revolves around them. And it's their production that kind of carries the team to success. What I've tried to do with my business model is shift away from that a bit and have the culture of the team as the center. So with that one assistant being able to leverage her time and her abilities to be organized, for example, you know, most of us, we fly by the seat of our pants or write notes down every which way, write numbers down. You know, we may not be the most organized people, especially a top producer. We need those organized personalities to create an organization that's successful and run like a machine. Mm. That one assistant turned into two assistants. Those two assistants turned into my first buyer's agent where I was only focused on listing appointments. That buyer's agent turned into two buyer's agents because the three of us or the two of us at the time couldn't get to enough business and needed three. And then it just snowballed from there. And now I've got incredible listing partners that not only am I pouring into them in terms of knowledge, but they're also pouring into me and their skill sets are different than mine. And I think and as an organization and a leader, you've got to be willing to not only spot that talent, but recruit it in a way that you can help foster their skill set and they can help your team culture and foster your team skill set. So that's kind of the work in progress that we're at now. And, you know, shifting production onto other agents in general is, is always kind of the, the difficulty in that. We want to be in control of everything as producers. I think every producer right. can relate to, to the idea of I can do it better than anybody else. But the reality is, is if we've got certain goals that we want to manage, if we start holding on to things too tightly, other things slip in our business and in our lives in general, whether it's sacrifice with time with family or um, with physicality, with your fitness, whatever it is that's most important to you, that team dynamic is a dynamic that allows you to, to control your time in a new way and a way that I wasn't able to do as an individual producer. That makes total sense. And I applaud you for not being afraid to hire other listing agents, right? Having an abundance mindset. I just know that there are so many brokers out there that they're the listing agent, they hire buyer's agents, right? And so your ability to actually partner and collaborate with other listing agents on your team, listing specialists, that's very admirable. And I think that a lot of listeners out there are thinking, Jonathan's here talking about having deals just raining from the sky and he's just bringing on people because, you know, they're like, I'm sure they're thinking, how are all these opportunities arising? So my question is, what percentage of referral business to new business is in your annual transactions? And, and then do you have any type of systems that are increasing the amounts of referrals that you're receiving? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's an interesting concept is what kind of referral business are we driving? And then how do we allocate referrals? For me, I've been able to leverage multiple networks, but one that's been very important has been the Sotheby's International Realty Network and having top producers in other areas that I can go and advertise my listings to exclusively and their feeder markets for my market. So what's fun about Sotheby's, whether it's 
you know, Sotheby's or Compass or England Volkers or Corcoran or any of these other large firms, we've got an ability to take a listing and go to those agents directly and say, hey, look, there's an opportunity for your clients in the second home market. We know they're already here to see this listing before it ever hits the market. And so those relationships are slowly built over time to create referral pipelines. For me, I've identified other second home markets that the customers that I've already got in my market, this is usually their third or fourth home. So wherever else they're spending time, I've become not only familiar with, but have connected with the top agents in those markets to make sure that I can serve their needs no matter where they're going. And I think that's kind of the goal when you look at the referral base of a business, you may have a specific team member that's only fielding referrals and inquiries and drumming up that business slowly but surely. But for us, being in a second home market, it makes it so easy because we're able to find referral partners in our customers, our existing customers, home markets, and the other markets that they're spending time in. That makes sense. And so that generates referrals, right? That's a kind of a built-in brokerage benefit that you have to be able to show yeah, pocket certainly. listings with your other partners. And yeah. then what percentage are referral to say new business or other sources, you know, on the so for us, it's, Yeah, it's probably 10% referral business, which means if I looked at my business as a whole, there's opportunity to grow both in inbound and outbound referrals. You know, I've made it a point to spend more time out in the Colorado ski markets. And one of the top agents in the state of Colorado is Ty Stockton and the Stockton Group. We spend a lot of time cultivating a relationship with those guys to the point where if I fly out to Vail, one of their team members is at the airport picking me up. And it's a level of camaraderie that we've got with each other. We reciprocate the same when these guys come into our market, just trying to take the best care of them as, that we possibly can and introduce them and educate them on what's going on in Northwest Florida, what's going on on 30A, what's going on in Seaside, what are the nuances of the market, what are developers doing, even to the point where you know we're wide open books in terms of our listing presentations. That's been really helpful to, to have this open communication with referral business that we have built from other markets. How can we enhance their business and their market and how could they enhance ours? Interesting. So if I heard you correctly, 90% of your business comes from other sources other than referrals. Is that right? Yeah, correct. So what's been your most profitable lead generation source other than referrals? So proactive marketing to developers specifically. So developers. the majority of my business model is built around customers that transact more than once. And for me in particular, when I look at um, representing somebody, whether it's on the buy side or the listing side, a lot of times I'm looking for the opportunity to represent someone that's going to transact a multitude of times, which allows me to best leverage my time with creating relationships. And same with my team, you know, we all have different skills and opportunities that we each come across. But I think being proactive, taking the success that we've maybe had with one development and one developer and going to another and saying, hey, listen, we can not only replicate the success, but we can show you how to build what the market rewards, especially when we've represented some of the most expensive properties and expensive sales in our market. It gives us an ability to advise and a capacity that not any other agent in the market could do. Got it. That's super interesting. So you partner with developers and in the beginning, how did that start? I mean, are you cold calling developers, asking oh, what their pain it. points are? Did you just do some research and you're like, oh, I can help them? Like, how did you break mm -hmm. in and initially establish those relationships? 
That's a great question. So um, I talked about going from a very reactive sales business to a very yeah. proactive sales business. Mm -hmm. What I found in the proactive side is you control your time so much more than being reactive. And I'm constantly answering my phone and responding to, you know, whoever's texting me. And it's, it's somewhat distracting from a proactive standpoint. When I first got into Sotheby's Realty and I was sitting in an office and I was kind of looking at my phone going, okay, uh, is it going to ring? I mean, what's going to happen here? I realized very quickly that I had to pick it up. I had to make those calls. And um, what I realized too, is that my passion for new construction was overriding other areas of the market. And so as I would drive around and observe properties and show properties to prospective buyers and transitioning more to a listing agent in particular, I would look for inventory that was not only impressive to me, but impressive for our market. And then I would target the owners of those properties specifically. So I remember the first major developer I started working with was probably six or seven years ago. I still work with him today. And I had crawled up in one of his new construction homes. And by crawl, I mean, it was being framed. Uh, it was this massive, beautiful home across the street from the beach. And I get up into the house and I look out in the backyard and he has this pool that's probably the size of the wind in Las Vegas. I mean, it is literally this unbelievable resort pool. I'd never seen anything like it for a single house. In fact, right. when I looked at the house originally, I thought maybe this guy's building a condo, but no, it looks like one house. And so it fascinated me. I was just so excited about it. And so right. I called this owner up and I introduced to him who I was. And I'm the development how. company. It's like a custom yes, construction right. company, right? Developer. Okay. Yeah. And I explained to him how I crawled up into his house uninvited, <laughs> but because I was so intrigued by what he was doing. Yeah. And he had explained to me that they weren't for sale. And after a little bit of proactive and appropriate persistence, I was able to get him to agree to selling one of those properties uh, with a commission agreement. So I did not have an exclusive. Any agent in the market could have knocked on his door and said, hey, I'm really intrigued by your house. You know, could I get a commission agreement to sell it? And that was just enough of an inch into that door that I kind of push my way in, in a sense. And just through that enthusiasm and an ability to articulate that product and truly an interest in what he was doing, was I able to start representing him? And so not only did I break a record for him on that deal, but he gave me two more after that. And the two more they gave me, I got exclusives on, which was exciting. And not only was I able to learn how his business model worked, which at the time he was prolific in what he was doing, but then I was able to take that same business model and educate other customers that came to me on that success in particular as to how they could build something that the market would reward at the same level that they were rewarding that particular development. So it gave me an education that, you know, I wouldn't have had otherwise had I not been proactive, had I not had that same kind of gravity that pulled me to that particular development, I may not have been in the same position that I'm at today. Absolutely. And that is the story that I was looking for. So thank you for sharing. That's going to resonate with a lot and get and definitely get some gears turning in the minds of our listeners. So I appreciate that. Where do you think the industry is heading? What are the five, 10 year projections for you? And, and what are you doing right now to set yourself up for future success? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's interesting throughout the pandemic and even the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of conglomerization in the industry, right? We've seen large brokerages that have affiliated with, you know, an international realty such as Sotheby's or Christie's or a Compass 
And we've seen a lot of these major acquisitions take place. I know specifically in the California market in San Francisco and other major metropolitan areas, you guys have had a lot of companies coming together. I see this team structure specifically like we've built at Spears Group being the future model of the industry. I think real estate agents in general have started to change from a retirement profession to a true profession that an entrepreneur can come out of college and be very proud and successful at. I specifically see opportunity for millennials. Not only was I able to dominate this local market and become one of the top agents in the United States, but I've also seen other millennials who've been able to digitize their marketing and kind of focus on different digital platforms to best express themselves. So I think the success of my business model in general is something that can be replicated. And for me, I look forward to seeing more millennials step up in a confident manner, offer value in this industry that can be articulated and can transcend both in you know a global manner, but specifically on these digital platforms that we're so fortunate to have. I think when we went through the pandemic last year, we realized how important it was to be able to communicate via Zoom, which most of us had never been on a Zoom call before that. I know I certainly hadn't. FaceTime was my go-to if I needed to have that stray virtual showing. But you know now it seems at least half of the showings that I'm going to, they're all completely virtual. I just did a transaction that was almost completely over text message too, which was a new one for me. Uh, I typically prefer talking to people, but I think being able to adapt is something that I've seen more out of that millennial agent and even being able to understand millennial buyers who in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see the greatest redistribution of wealth that we've seen in generations to this millennial generation in particular. And I think being able to not only understand the communication that millennials have, but their ability to be fluid and what's most important to them is going to set us up for success in the next five to 10 years. Boom. Nailed it. And I want to touch a little bit more on the digital marketing aspect of that. Yeah. You know, you mentioned some millennials have come in and been able to corner their markets in the real estate agent space by just being adept to technology. And so what are you guys doing that might be a great tip for any brokerages out there or unique that, you know, digital marketing, whether it's paid advertising, organic yeah. content, storytelling, you know, what do you have going on at, at your brokerage and your with your team? Yeah, so I think content is very important. One thing that I love about the team that we've built at Spears Group is that there's so much different creative flow and there's different storytelling that happens. So selling luxury real estate in general is all about the story. Um, it may be the story of why someone purchased a house on the beach for one price while the home next door sold for double that price. You know, what's the story of that purchaser? What, you know, what is so newsworthy about that? It's what puts outlets like the real deal in business. You know, people want to know they're truly interested, they're engaged. And our ability to tell those stories in not only a captivating manner, but in a manner that's visual and is something that we can experience all within the four corners of this, I think is the most important piece. So for us, we leverage Instagram, we leverage TikTok, we leverage Facebook, depending on the audience that we're going after, and different platforms offer different opportunities. And one thing that Spears Group's just recently invested in is a full-time videographer and photographer that can not only create and generate content that's specific to Spears Group, but we can also take content and monopolize it. I can't have a competitor go out and immediately copy my content because the videographer that we've hired works for us exclusively. And so I love watching you know, some of the top agents, I think, 
we're all familiar with, Ryan Serhant, Frederick Eklund, some of the guys that before being an influencer was possible, they made it big on reality television. But a lot of those folks were able to take some of that base from reality television and translate that to social media following that is real and it's tangible. You know, I just did a transaction with somebody here that turned into three different multi-million dollar deals through a lead that came in on Instagram. And we're seeing that more and more and more in terms of our business. And where is our business coming from? You know, we talked about a 10% referral business uh, out of the $265 million in business we did last year. You know, where are those other leads deriving from? Those digital platforms are the most instant opportunity to get in front of people. I think even when you look at branding, like Sotheby's International Realty, it used to be very, very paramount and polarizing for somebody to, to be with an international firm. What's so amazing about what we've got now and where I think the future of real estate is going is that we're all international and we're immediately accessible through those social media accounts and through the digitized age and the information age that we've stepped into. Great points. And the focus on content is so key. So you're focusing on storytelling, you're focusing on having consistent content calendar, documenting what you're doing, and then capturing that in the four corners of their cell phone so that it's in their pockets in front of them at all times. Are you also right. leveraging paid advertising? We do some paid advertising, but I mean, even from a media standpoint, I've got my own PR team. We never do paid media stints. We always want to have earned media opportunities. I think what is most holistic and most effective when you've got a marketing approach is when it's organic, when it's real. And sometimes things that are paid for get lost in translation. So I think for me and my business, I look for the most holistic options, you know, the Google ads, the Zillow advertising, that's, those types of concepts make up a very small portion of my business model. I'm looking for the most organic opportunities, the realest stories, the realest people to share and to place in a property and being able to tell those stories through video and through other digital content is, is really important and really where I think we'll see the most success going forward. Got it. So you're leveraging your existing networks. You have a PR team that's, that's leveraging their contacts. Are you putting yeah. a lot of content on search engine friendly social platforms like YouTube as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Part of our media team's job is building out our YouTube page, building out a portfolio that somebody could go through and browse. And not only will it tell a story about us, but it'll tell a story about the area. It'll tell a story about the markets we serve, about you know how white and squeaky clean our beaches are. They're the whitest sand in the United States, but most people may not know that. So it's a shift away from just focusing on property and more so focusing on the area. How can we enjoy it? Why is it a family area? You know, how do we welcome people here? What are the restaurants like? What's the culture? You know, what is Northwest Florida? How do we embody that? And I think that's what's most important from a content creation standpoint is we're less focused on, hey, look at this property, look at this price tag, look at this you know, flash. And we're focused on, look at this opportunity, look at these lifestyles that you can live and, and look at the affordability of it compared to other major markets in the United States. Look at what this area offers. And um, I think we're really excited and, and just thankful to be able to represent such a special place. Yeah, I love that. And with that comes a little bit of research, looking at, you know, what people are, are searching, yeah. how they're typing it, because mm -hmm. how you describe a certain aspect of a city or a, or a property is going to be different from how an uneducated consumer would type it in. Even if they've done five transactions, they're not in the real estate industry, so they'll type it differently 
how are you doing your keyword research? Is this something that you're doing in team meetings? Uh, you have the PR team that's doing it. You have the, your digital you know, videographer team and they're focusing on it. Or do yeah. you use a certain tool or, or a piece of software that would be helpful to my listeners? Yeah, so we do have different teams that focus on keyword searches. I think too, you know, being able to get placement in areas of the internet that would appeal to different demographics of purchasers. For example, you know, was there an opportunity to have a quote or an influence in the Wall Street Journal or Business Insider or Forbes or LA Times or New York Times? Um, all of those publications and outlets are very important to us to drive business back to different media channels, whether it's our Boomtown platform, which is the CRM that we use to keep in touch with our clients. Boomtown's been an incredible resource for us and a CRM that all of our agents on our team have been able to use and, and ultimately stay in touch with their customers, whether they're creating drip campaigns or they're using some of the articles and the outlets that we've generated organically to drive traffic back to those websites. And then, you know, from just a search engine optimization standpoint, making sure that we're invested with the right partners who can get us at the top of the page, both organically and in, in a way that can you know, target specific listings. So let's just say I'm bringing one of the most expensive homes in the market to fruition. I want to make sure that I'm positioned at the top of these search pages and for success when we're going after a specific marketing play. That makes sense. So you're, you have team members that are helping you with the keyword research and it sounds like you're also keeping your ear to the ground. You're listening, right? And yeah, then I would say when it comes to that side of the business in particular and really different facets of the business, you know, it's interesting because we've got Spears group and we talked earlier about the top producer being in the center, but I've really relied on, you know, leaders in the industry or up and comers in the industry. I always look for talent to invest in, whether it's talent in the real estate sales field, if I'm hiring a new advisor or if I'm hiring a videographer, or if I'm looking for a certain PR team, all of those different outlets are areas to manage and, you know, to cultivate as part of your business strategy and bringing an organization together. Got it. From the outside in, it can seem like this is a overnight success. Obviously, there's 11 years of hard work and probably some failures yeah. in the process of getting to the point where you're at today. And I'm curious, do you have a favorite failure of yours, an inspiring story? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, <laughs> this is more of an embarrassing one, but it's fun. So I remember I had a celebrity client buyer and, um, we'll go without naming them. Yes, and absolutely. I was showing them property. I had them in my car. I was so excited. My palms were sweaty. I'm a little nervous, but of course we've hit it off. We're like BFF after 10 minutes. So the pressure kind of came down and we're out looking at property. Uh, there were two side-by-side -side listings. One had sold, the other was available. And in my haste, I took them into the wrong property. And so we knock on the door, the instructions from my assistant were, hey, there's a renter there, they're gonna let you in. This was actually pre-pandemic, so we weren't wearing masks at the time. We, we didn't have to deal with that. But knocking on the door, this lady's on the phone, she opens the door and she waves us in. So I'm like, awesome, we're in, let's go. This is amazing. And I'm describing this house. <laughs> this lady hangs up the phone and she comes over to me. She goes, you're not the painter, are you? And I was like, no, ma'am, I'm not. And she, she realized very quickly who we were. 
and that we were in the wrong place. And thank God she was gracious because like her kids were hanging out on the couch. They were eating pizza. Like it was very intrusive. And of course she had just bought this new house, which was next door to this house that was for sale. And she had vendors coming and going, but she didn't expect to have somebody bring clients through. And she made it very clear to us that the house was not for sale. So that was probably a failure that I will never forget. And I'll make sure that I check addresses every time I walk into a house. Wow. That's a great story. And the (laughs) big question is, did that celebrity client still use you to purchase that home? Yes, they did. Yes. Honestly, they laughed about it. You know, like here's the biggest thing when we fail, we just have to get back up. We just have to keep going. I mean, none of us are immune to failure. We learn from it. And of course I learned from it. I love that. And with that being said, you know, you've given a lot of great advice throughout this podcast and I thank you for that. What are some bad recommendations you hear given to other real estate professionals? Could be in like Facebook groups or coaching or whatever it is, but there's got to be some bad ones where you're like, uh, I don't know about that. I think there's this misconception that grinding is the way to grow. Like we've mm. just got to grind, you know, like we just have to work harder, right? One thing that I've realized about being a consistent top producer is that producing at the highest level is about working smarter, not about necessarily working harder. So there's a lot of salespeople that you'll see that will sacrifice a family life, they'll sacrifice any type of personal time for success. And then they'll ring the bell and say, you know what? It's because I just work so hard that I'm successful. Well, that's a really easy thing to say. And it's not really practical. You know, for me, like having some type of holistic approach to my business is more important. And where I've found a lot of success, I don't wake up at four o'clock in the morning. You know, I wake up in the morning and I go see my kids first. I'm not on my phone, you know, immediately sending emails. I'm going in there and I'm seeing my 12-week-old son and my three-year-old daughter and loving on them. And I've got specific boundaries that I've tried to put into place. It definitely doesn't mean that I'm always perfect. I'm always working on that. But there's this sense in this culture, in this business and in business in general, that we just all grind through it and we're going to be ahead. But the reality is, is that we want to work smart. We're not here to just, you know, work until we die. We want to create something right. that is intentional and, and have relationships that we can enjoy. Um, and I think we do that by, you know, making sure that we plan things out and that uh, we slow down and we make the best decisions possible after observing and and taking our time. Okay. So it seems like you've done some work setting boundaries and saying no to things. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Do you have have a process? (laughs) Yeah. You you like to say no. I love that. Um, Do you have a process for what to say no to, you know, any type of evaluation method or quick one-liner, which just boils it down and makes it simple? Well, right now I never say no to my wife and I always say no to my three-year-old. So I feel like I'm caught in that, <laughs> that whole um, sphere, but now in business, for me, it's really an evaluation of time. You know, as salespeople, we're exchanging our time for money. And sometimes our time is more valuable to some and it's not very valuable to others. I think when I evaluate, am I going to say yes? Am I going to do this podcast? Because, you know, I really could be on the phone making prospecting calls why would I do that? You know, why would I, why would I want to say yes to this? And for me, I want to add value to people's lives. You know, that's so important to me. I want to increase my ability to network and influence and help other agents. When I look at a different customer, can I work with you? It's okay to say no. There may be a personality conflict that, you know, really, I'm not going to enjoy this process and neither are they just, we may not be a good fit. 
Um, it's also where having a team comes into play because there may be a personality that I don't work great with, but that one of my team members does. And so mm. just being able to evaluate and, and make smart decisions in that way, that's, that's how I've navigated the yeses and the noes. Yeah, that makes total sense. I like how you prioritize family, of course. <laughs> Always say, never say no to your wife. Always say no to your three-year-old. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my wife's going to roll her eyes though because she knows that sometimes I say no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so be best intentions, right? Of course. So when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, I mean, you got a lot going on. You're a young man, you get $265 million real estate team, two children, wife. You probably have a life outside of that, friends, you know, hobbies, activities. So yeah. when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what questions do you ask yourself or what process do you go through to get back on track? Um, I've always been a big picture guy. So I can look down the road and say, this is what I want. And I think, you know, even in my fitness, like I look at, at fitness in a, in a sense that I don't really want to get up at 6.30 every morning and go straight to the gym and start my day doing CrossFit or whatever workout I'm doing that day. But I know what that result is. And to stay driven, to not get burnt out, we have to figure out why are we doing this? What is our why? Even as a team, like coming together collectively, what is our why? Because at the end of the day, we're here to make money. But at some point that becomes very empty and it's figuring out, okay, what is this collective goal? Is it to be able to take some off of someone's plate so that they can go spend more time with their family? Is it to, um, you know, make a certain financial goal so that we can reach new heights and maybe another aspect of life? You know, real estate is just one funnel of income. A lot of people look at it as an end-all be-all and most agents, they spend what they make. And that's why they're great agents because they're required to stay on this treadmill constantly. It's also a really good way to get burnt out and to feel very empty. So I would encourage all the viewers, what is your why? You know, why are you doing this? Why is this so important to you? And as you evaluate that, look at the relationships you've made along the way. Look at the value that you brought to somebody along the way and always go back to those points when you're feeling like extremely stressed over a transaction or like a certain obstacle or hurdle is not something you can get through or get over and you want to quit. Focus on that perseverance and make sure you always have a why that will get you to the finish line. And I think that, that for our business and for me personally, that's what keeps us going and that's what keeps us successful. A big enough why will overcome anyhow, right? Absolutely. Yeah. What's your big why? For me, it's freedom. I want to be freedom. free. I don't want to be tied down. As someone who basically had a coming of age during the Great Recession, I saw a lot of people that were twice, three times my age that lost everything. And what they lost wasn't money. They lost freedom. Freedom in particular was completely restricted. Freedom to travel, you know, freedom to, to not have to be on the phone when they don't want to be on the phone. For me, the reason that I work so hard is I want to have freedom. I want to be able to go to Europe with my kids once borders open up. I want to be able to do things with my family that you may not be able to do otherwise. So that's what keeps me going. I love that. And I love the definition of it as well. It's not just freedom in some arbitrary sense. It's a very specific yeah. definition of freedom that is important to you. And that one word just means the world. You could have it written on your dream board, on a sticky yes. note, on, on your mirror, on a whiteboard. And when you see that, you're like, that's what I'm going for, right? I'm a, I'm a big yep. dream board 
morning formula vision guy. I got, got it right behind me right here. I've just over the years, just checked thing after thing off of that dream board. And it's so important to keep that top of mind right in front of you. And I love that. It's one word. It's important to you, freedom. And I tend to agree with you as well. My big one word is inspiration. So with that being said, do you have any type of like habit or, you know, an unusual or absurd thing that you just love? For example, I have this thing called a, a sub pack. It's a backpack that you put on and you you cycle your headphones through it and you put headphones on and it replicates a subwoofer. But it's like it's like Ooh. being at front stage at a concert or like yeah. right on, you know, right in front of the speakers. And it's just I used to love to as a teenager and in my early 20s going to shows and feeling the effect of the show. And so it kind of brings music back to life when you're listening to it on just your headphones and you put that on, you actually feel it. So that's something that's just like weird. It was like under $200. I love it. <laughs> um, it. That would get me so lit up more than a cup of coffee or anything. If I just wake up in the morning, do my morning routine and then listen to some great music with that on, I am yeah. fired up, right? So is there any like absurd thing that you have that it's like a little habit that uh, it's kind of interesting? Yeah. Okay. First of all, you're going to have to send me an Amazon link later. I got to listen to that when I get on the Peloton or when I work out, that's giving me all hyped, which I love. It's unreal. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds amazing. Um, for me, you know, that's an interesting question. I would say there's not one single thing that I wake up and go to immediately. Like I think wardrobe specifically, I read this article recently where it was a top agent that was talking about how they put on this suit and that suit made them feel like Superman. And it's almost like they had a different persona and a level of confidence. For me, being able to wake up and, you know, just put on the right attire and put on the right mindset, ultimately, just like what you were talking about, you put those headphones on, your mind goes to a different place. That's really important for me. It's something that drives me and allows me to walk into a meeting and, and feel great. I was joking earlier, you know, I don't always want to get up and work out, but the result that I know at the end of my workout is, is I don't have to buy new clothes. I can fit into the ones that I have. So, <laughs> uh, you know, like those are motivating aspects for me. So I'd say attire. All right. I like it being well-dressed, feeling good about it. I've heard the term you know, wear your power socks. If you have like a big presentation yeah. or something like, like whatever oh, yeah. that item is, or that like brand of, of clothing that you love and it makes you feel good about yourself, you know, look good. What is it? Look good, feel good, play good. Right. That's Absolutely. the the basketball quote. That's awesome. What are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life or career? I'm always looking for new, new reading material. Yeah. And, you know, if you have one that just did it, that's fine. Or you can do, you know, three or whatever. I'm always like, I'm a person of where are you at in your book reading? Uh, right now, I'm at Cashflow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki and nice. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Classic. Cashflow Quadrant, I love. Uh, as salespeople, do you have the game Cashflow? Are... No, I need to get it. That's next on my list. I'm only halfway through the book. So, that's been a good one. I think we're all stuck in an S quadrant as salespeople. How do we funnel the commission income we're making and have that make money for us somewhere else? That's where my mind's at at the present. And then I'm reading Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which I really like. Five Dysfunctions of a Team. For me, especially, you know, I told you earlier, work in progress on team culture and the way that we, we shift from individuals to a functioning team, this book in particular has been really good. And then I'd say the last one is Think and Grow Rich. 
And you don't even need to read the book. Just read the title. It's very specific. But I think elevating your mindset each day, finding others that can not only be mentors, but people you can mentor. Iron always sharpens iron. And um, that's how you start to elevate your business and uh, the rest of your life. And the mastermind concept and think and grow rich. I just love that. It's amazing. Yeah. No, those are some great book suggestions. I have the cash flow quadrant as well. I do have the cash flow game. And uh, I'll get your address after this. I'll send it to you as a gift. It's great. It's great. You got to play with your kids as they're growing up. And uh, it's like a more fun version of Monopoly. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds like a blast. Yeah. So is there a question that I should have asked you or, you know, anything that you'd like to expand on from earlier? I think you nailed it. You know, it's interesting you would ask, like, what's the future of this industry? One thing we didn't really talk about is where are we at today? You know, like when we look at real estate markets, if you're in the mortgage industry, you look at your interest rates. I mean, it's amazing. Last year during the pandemic, I saw more mortgage brokers that were making money hand over fist in refis. You know, people who they had locked in at 5% rates and now that they were getting 2.5% rates, they're refining everything they have incredible business models. I think the next crisis in our industry right now is inventory, specifically for these second home markets, non-metropolitan markets. You know, we're seeing this massive rush and absorption like we've never seen before. Right now in this market, we usually have six months of inventory. There's less than two months of inventory and that's at last glance. It's being depleted by the day and it's not being replaced. So I think that's a greater conversation to have in general and something to pay attention to. Uh, A lot of people talk about a big market crash that may or may not come. I don't think that the market crash looks quite the same as what we may have experienced in the past. And I think that with a lack of inventory to sell, you're going to see a lot of shifts in culture and shifts in the way people operate out of a requirement to transact. You know, we make our money by transacting. A lot of salespeople are going to shift the good practices and maybe lean into bad practices because of that market shift. So I think it's very important to, to evaluate yourself and make sure that as you operate, you're operating at the highest level of ethics. You're operating with integrity every single time you transact because you're not going to see that be the norm. We certainly have it in this market. And, um, you know, I think that others around the U.S. can, can also relate. That makes total sense. I agree with you on the listing crisis that's already happening and the lack of ethics when things go wrong. It's easy to play in the rules and everything's good, but almost every past like FDA approval of a new restricted food category or, or, you know, drug category is a business on the brink of bankruptcy that cut corners and tried something, right? That's the breeding ground for a lack of ethics. So great point there. You know, at the end of the day, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our buyers and sellers, making sure to uphold that and keep that first and foremost, everyone's going to be okay. You know, it just, uh, it's a, it's a better way to be. So how can listeners contact you? So listeners can contact me through my website, SpearsGroupFL, like Florida.com. Also on Instagram, at SpearsGroup or at Jonathan M. Is in Michael Spears. Awesome. And I'll link to that in the description of the show. Jonathan Spears, everybody, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Uh, you dropped so much value and you know I can't wait to air this episode and uh, just get it out there so that you can help a ton of people. All of our listeners are going to be very appreciative. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And have a great day. Thanks. Likewise. 
Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.